Hi, comrades. Yeah, I'd also like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people and the Aboriginal struggle that continues today. And I think it's useful to think about um, Indigenous struggles around the world and how we view them and whether we would ask them to accept a something that the Palestinians have been asked to accept all this time. Apartheid states or some tiny fragments of bits of land that might be offered in a two-state solution. And I don't think, even in South Africa, that that was um, a expectation or there was the world community accepted that as a way forward. So I think we've got to keep that in mind when we think about two-state solution. And I've, I found it quite a shock that this was actually a topic for the talk until I, you know, looked at the news and saw it was actually being dragged up yet yet again by um, leaders around the world who are searching for something to say is a solution. And so I think it is important that we, we talk about it. So, you know, at the, at the moment, the ceasefire is over, the war in Gaza is in full force. We're talking about 1.8 million people of... 2.3 million people who are now displaced. We're talking about almost 17,000 dead. Um, there's no sign of this slowing down. Um, and Israel is, you know, got the tanks in the south. And it's, got, it's at the point where, you know, it's, it's absolutely catastrophic. People are talking about it being an apocalypse and that there's never, ever been this sort of um, level of civilian casualties and... Um, ever seen before. Gutierrez of the UN has, um, you know, called for an Article 99 um, asking the Security Council to join and um, call a, a ceasefire. But as we know, you know, five of the permanent members include China, Russia, the US, the UK and France. They hold the veto power. So that that is not going to happen. So you know, the world leaders, this is what they're offering us. Um, so what else do we hear? We hear about renewed calls for the two-state solution. Um, the US President Joe Biden um, says we need to renew our resolve to pursue this two-state solution. And our um, Foreign Affairs Minister Penny Wong tells us that the two-state solution is the only way the Israel-Palestinian conflict can be solved. The UN called for the international community to move towards a two-state solution and it is long past time to move in a determined, irreversible way towards this. The Arab um, states in the Uni uh, European Union met in Spain recently and they also said that a two-state solution was the answer. And this is... Um, the, all the EU members there, Mediterranean nations were there, Arab nations and, of course, Israel did not attend the summit. So um, that's quite an interesting point. So what exactly, we'll talk about what it is, the two-state solution, how did it come about, why did the negotiations that occurred over the last 30 years to try and work towards it break down and what the legacy of that was, if it's even actually possible and if it could actually ever deliver, sort of what could actually deliver the the justice, freedom and self-determination that the Palestinians deserve. I will argue that what we are seeing in Gaza and Palestine is precisely because of decades of pursuit of a two-state solution, that the international community and particularly the West used this 
to maintain the status quo, ensure Israel's dominance in the region and distract from the crimes um, and continued colonisation. So it was never a solution that was offered. It was, it's been a criminal distraction, a, a distraction at the moment from the immediate war crimes that are occurring in Gaza. And it's also been a permanent distraction from Israel's colonial project that they've always supported. Now, I'll argue that it's also not possible and it is becoming increasingly clear um, that there's actually only one way forward, and that's one state. And whether that's the state, the one state as Israel envisions it, or one that actually can deliver justice to the, the people in the land of Palestine um, is what the international movement um, must tackle. So what exactly was it is supposedly this two-state agreement? So the idea is that there will be two states, one for Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza Strip, uh, and that will be along side Israel. So it's accepting the 1967 borders, um, which is approximately 22% of Palestine. So I'm pretty sure you're all familiar with the map of Palestine, but just in case you're not, this is Palestine pre-1948. This was when um, the Nakba occurred, the catastrophe, um, and 750,000 Palestinians were um, pushed out of Israel and um, only the Gaza Strip over here in West Bank remained. In 1967, this is where um, uh, the Israel occupied Gaza and the West Bank as well um, and these red borders here are nominally the borders of 1967 and so the state would supposedly have been this, these two areas. So the talks for this actual um, two-state solution sort of began around the 80s and the 90s, um, particularly in the 90s um, with the Oslo Accords. So that was negotiations set up um, mainly by the US between the leading resistance, Palestinian resistance group, the Palestinian Liberation Organisation and Israel. Now, the only real reason that Israel um, seriously began these negotiations, they were forced to because of the um, first intifada. They could see that they weren't able to actually manage the occupation as they wanted. They wanted a way out and also a justification and a way to actually sort of suppress, I guess, the Palestinian resistance. And so and I, on the other side of it, the Palestinian desperation after, um, you know, uh, the Nakba, the 1967 and the portrayal of the Arab leaders around that and were looking for some sort of remnant of a state that they could call their own. The PLO actually made major concessions by recognising the State of Israel and they had to do that in order to, I guess, um, enter into the negotiations. But to meet the goal of this um, two-state solution, there was a whole bunch of steps that... Um, was meant to be taken, and that included the phased withdrawal of the Israeli military from the Palestinian territories that it had illegally occupied in 1967, the transfer of authority to a Palestinian administration, except for, um, and then a whole bunch of other status issues, including the status of Jerusalem, um, which would be negotiated at a later date. The accords um, led to the creation of the Palestinian Authority 
and the division of territory in the West Bank into areas A, B and C, which um, denoted where the Palestinian Authority would actually um, be able to administer. So it wasn't actually going to be a state. It was going to be an entity with very, very limited power and not um, power which actually, you know, could determine how they use their resources or have control over their borders, or secure, um, but a security force that would actually be able to monitor internally. So this was what the West Bank was actually going to look like, which they actually started to undertake, of course. So this is the West Bank. These green areas were under Palestinian control. So if we're talking about a state, <laughs> these are the tiny areas where, yay... We, they actually had some control. These ones were, this one here was under joint control um, with Israel and Palestine. And then all these, uh, this other area, the blue area, was under Israeli control. So this is the extent to which Palestine was actually able to have control over the territory. One of the reasons, I guess, that they got into the situation is that Israel was forced to deal with the reality they wanted to preserve, you know, their Jewish and dem democratic character of Israel, um, but they were facing demographic problems um, where the majority, they couldn't maintain a majority of Israeli Jewish um, pop uh, population. And then when they took control of 1967, they got rid of the international um, recognised borders and that green line was erased. They had to actually try and manage the Palestinians and... Um, and so it sort of came to a head in the conflict with, um, with the Intifada in the, in the 1980s. So Israel realised that that was unsustainable and they needed some form of separation. So that's why they pursued um, the two-state solution. But I guess for Israel, the Oslo Accords was never about peace. Um, it was implementing a variant of the Elon Plan, which was um, permanently incorporate the conquests of the 1967 Arab-Israeli war into Israel, while ena ena enabling like a very limited autonomy and self-governance -gov for the Palestinians, but without actually sovereignty. And it was also very effective in scuttling self-determination claims of Palestinians. Um, and keep them in this constant state of negotiations, while at the same time they were still very much pursuing the Zionist project. So this is how Israel went into the Oslo process. The economist Ari Arnon, Israeli economist, said they didn't want neither two nor one, neither a one-state solution, um, Israelis and pal Palestinians part of a single political entity, nor did they want an emergence of an independent Palestinian state alongside Israel. So they just continued to vacillate between the two alternatives. And they wanted to create a co-opted Palestinian elite to police its own people and manage the Palestinian problem. Um, and so that's what the PA was about, um, the Palestinian Authority. They were to administer education and health and also managed the security problem. What they sort of also did create, though, um, through all this, is I guess it laid down the, the path, the, paved the way for an apartheid state. Um, so what you actually had was the creation of parallel infrastructures for Israelis and Palestinians, but with Palestinians lacking any sovereignty um, and the complete subordination of one controlled by the other. And on the economic front, although the Oslo process claimed to push forward a two-state solution by allowing Palestinians to set up um, ministries and develop state resources, they were ultimately uh, Israel maintains that 
maintained its de-development policies. This meant preventing the emergence of productive industries and the development of horizontal linkages between different Palestinian localities that might generate um, surpluses, etc. Instead, Israel kept the occupied Palestinian territories dependent, stuck in stasis, which is sort of very, very remnant of the South African Bajistans, and reliant on Israeli um, um, industries. So I guess when we think about whether um, looking at a two-state solution and it's increasingly becoming clear that it's, it's not possible. First of all, it's never actually been the aim of Israel. They've always wanted the whole territory. And it's worth looking at what, you know, the global leaders, you know, who are calling for it, say, versus what Israel um, and Israelis, the ruling elite, have been saying. And we also need to highlight the continuing Israeli consensus that they are going to go forward with oppressing the Palestinians and they're doing it on a daily basis. Um, in July this year, Netanyahu told the Israeli Parliamentary Committee that Palestinian hopes of establishing sovereign state must be eliminated. There's been no Israeli government that's ever agreed on a state, only some sort of limited self-governing authority. And now what we're looking at is the rise of the right in Israel um, and the very much a, a push um, towards a Jewish supremacist political line. They don't care about the facade of liberalism as the previous um, administrations did. And they see, you know, they see no need for the Zionist projects to have like a liberal facade. They believe they're entitled to the land and powerful enough to reject any sort of form of political compromise with the Palestinian people. They have been expanding Jewish settlements. Um, the Palestinians inside Israel 48 terrorised, like those that they occupy. Organisations of Jews have been uh, used to spy on Palestinians inside uh, Palestine 48 and prevent any construction of, of buildings. There's been the um, attacks on Al-Aqsa Mosque um, and the, the debates over sovereignty over it as well, where it's not recognised um, that Palestinians have any sovereignty over that area. Now, also there's, of course, the whether or not the actual idea of a two-state solution is viable, whether or not anyone thinks it's actually desirable, is the, the very fact that there is actually no land left. The two, for the two-station two-state solution to be viable, you'd have to evacuate some 800,000 settlers from the West Bank. To get to the 1967 borders, you'd have to remove the occupation, there would have to be demilitarisation, Israel would have to disarm, and this is not going to happen. Um, we've got the most heavily armed, technologically advanced, Western-backed nation in the region, alongside um, a very, very you know, uh, poor Palestinian population. And the kind of state that's been talked about was never really a Palestinian state. It would be an entity that lacked control of its borders, its own water, its own airspace, its own electrical grid, and never been discussed as actually being an equal state alongside um, that of Israel. It would just be a bunch of little um, enclaves um, that, that are actually disconnected by checkpoints, by roads, etc. So... I guess the thing is, like, that, that is becoming clearer, not just to, to, I guess, the mass movements, is that there is no alternative except for one state. And there's, 
in all the international calls by the elite for a two-state solution, nobody's actually been asking the Palestinian people. And it's kind of that, you know, the audacity of the ruling class to expect the Palestinian people, after they're being bombed, after they've been dispossessed, after they've been trapped inside an apocalypse, to actually be prepared to negotiate with a state that is actually, you know, have, has called them human animals and is, is treating them in this way. And, of course, the very idea that, you know, an oppressed people would have to, to negotiate um, over their own land uh, in a colonial settler state is, you know, is quite appalling. Um, but also we are dealing with a new reality, an apartheid state reality. And this is pushing Palestinians to believe that there is only one solution, one democratic state with equal rights where Arabs, Jews and others could live alongside each other. But Israel also has a one-state solution. They know that apartheid is a temporary managerial solution. They know they can't maintain it, not sustainable in the long run. And so Netanyahu and, and you know, the fascist crowd that he, he has in power at the moment, they, they know that there's a demographic problem and so they're looking at ethnic cleansing of Palestine and this has been something that actually they've been talking about for a long time and they've found their excuse and they're currently carrying out in Gaza and believe will probably move next to the West Bank. I guess the thing is that the impossibility of a two-state solution has meant that there is a great interest in and acceptance of a one-state solution. People are recognising that Israel is a racist colonial settler state that is imposing apartheid and genocide on Palestinians and that there is no legitimacy to the claim that it has a right to exist um, as, as, it, as it believes. And I guess we are seeing this, you know, chanted globally in the calls for from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. You know, that the Zionist project has no legitimacy and any solution that does not entail the dismantling of the Israeli apartheid and the right for Palestinians expelled from Israel to return in their homes will not deliver justice. And, like, this might seem like an impossible dream, but as, like, a number of people have argued... The idea that Palestinians Israelis can share a single country is not a new one. Um, it, but it was actually, you know, seen throughout history for hundreds of years beforehand. Jews and, and um, uh, Muslims, Palestinians um, living side by side for a long time. But to break Israeli apartheid will require revolutionary struggle, um, both internationally and in the Arab countries surrounding Israel. And I guess... Increasingly, both Palestinians within Palestine and globally are looking to the mass movements to actually um, be, be the counterweight to the horror that we're seeing um, in Israel. So Palestinians have learned and in, were inspired also by the Arab Spring and, the, and, you know, they're also seeing the crisis of, I guess, and legitimacy of, of um, official leaders like Fatah and Hamas and looking outwards for revolution, um, for liberation, and look to the mass mobilisations that reject the sham peace process and instead connect Gazans and people from the West Bank with refugees, Israeli Arabs and groups that support their demands for rights, especially the right to return. Thank you. Mm -hmm.